Chapter 31 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 31 Newton and His Successors. The work of Kepler prepared the way for the greatest discovery ever made in the history of astronomy. In the first chapter, reference was briefly made to the marvelous fact of gravitation, but gravitation is never thought of or spoken of apart from its discoverer. It is, quote, the Newtonian law, end quote. It is never dissociated from the mighty intellect which first revealed it. Kepler had detected the laws of the planetary motions, but he was unable to show the cause of these motions. The hour had come for the discovery of the fundamental law of the universe, and with the hour came the man. Isaac Newton, the illustrious astronomer, was the son of a Lincolnshire farmer. Born at Woolsthorpe, near Grantham, in 1642, he was sent at the age of twelve to a school at Grantham. At first he was very idle in his studies, but it was not long before he began to take an interest in constructing mechanical models and sundials. One of these dials still remains at Woolsthorpe, when he was fourteen years of age, Newton was removed from the school by his mother, who desired him to become a farmer, hoping that he would now lay aside his books and the studious habits to which he had become addicted. On one occasion, Newton was sent in company with an old farm servant to a neighboring town to sell the products of the farm. The young astronomer, however, preferred to leave the disposal of the products to his companion and interested himself in a collection of old books which he had found in a garret. One of his uncles found him one day sitting behind a hedge reading a book on abstruse mathematics instead of attending to the farm. It was clear that he would not make a good farmer, and his mother, at his uncle's suggestion, wisely resolved to send him to the school to prepare for the university. On June 5, 1660, when he was 17 years of age, Newton entered the University of Cambridge, and soon afterwards finally turned to astronomy and mathematics. In 1664 and 1665, his excessive study of mathematics brought on ill health, which was intensified by sitting up at night to observe a comet. He made such progress in his studies that in 1669, when in his 27th year, he was appointed Lucasian Professor of Mathematics at Cambridge. Among Newton's early studies were his investigations on light. He was much interested in it and was the first to disperse it in a prism. He showed that white light was actually composed of the seven colors, red, yellow, orange, green, blue, indigo, and violet, but he could never have foreseen the discoveries made in the 19th century. He formulated a theory of light opposed to the true view of Huygens, supposing light to be caused by the emission of minute particles from the celestial bodies. He was so great a man in comparison with Huygens that his theory was believed for over a hundred years. Isaac Newton's researches regarding light prepared the way for the invention of the reflecting telescope. Galileo, as already mentioned, was the first to invent the refractor. It was soon found that as the size of the instrument was increased, the field of view was impaired by a defect known as chromatic aberration. In fact, the object glasses, like prisms, dispersed the light into its primary colors. To counterbalance this difficulty, Huygens and Hevelius made telescopes of enormous focal length. 
but this could not go on forever, and Newton, in his investigations on the subject, came to the conclusion that it was impossible to produce a telescope which would be free from chromatic aberration. We know that he was wrong, as several English opticians afterwards succeeded in constructing telescopes free from this defect, and known as achromatic refractors. Perhaps, however, it was as well for astronomy that Newton erred in regard to the telescope. He determined to make a telescope which did not depend upon refraction, and constructed a concave mirror by a combination of copper and tin, which shone with a luster of silver. He then fixed it at the bottom of a tube, and the images of the stars were examined by means of a magnifying eyepiece. The little telescope was only one inch in diameter, but all the same it distinctly showed the satellites of Jupiter in the faces of Venus. It is now preserved by the Royal Society of London in memory of the great astronomer. This invention was an invaluable boon to science, and gigantic reflectors have since been constructed on Newton's principle by Herschel, Ross, and other eminent astronomers. In 1666, as previously mentioned, he began his investigations of the subject of gravitation. Whether the well-known story of the apple is true or not, it is an excellent illustration of Newton's line of reasoning. The story is that, in 1666, as Newton was sitting in his garden at Woolsthorpe, the fall of an apple led him to ask if gravitation, already known to exist on the earth, and which caused the apple to fall, did not also hold the moon to the earth. The great discovery was made. Having extended gravitation to the moon, the great astronomer could likewise extend it to the solar system. By this method, the laws of Kepler were shown to be the natural outcome of universal gravitation. All this may seem very simple, but a great number of difficulties lay before Newton. He could not reconcile several facts regarding the moon with the theory of gravitation, and he abandoned the subject until 1684. At that time, a discussion was proceeding in London between the astronomer Halley, the scientist Hooke, and the architect Sir Christopher Wren regarding the movement of a planet according to gravitation. Hooke, who was a jealous and vain man, tried to make people believe that he had the solution, but would not give it to the world until, by attempting, people had found out how difficult it was, and would thereby honor the discoverer. Halley, in order to get more light on the subject, asked Newton, who, to his surprise, solved it at once. Halley urged Newton to publish his discoveries regarding universal gravitation. At that time also, new measurements regarding the moon's distance had removed the difficulties which had hindered the establishment of the law of gravitation. Newton, therefore, published his discoveries in the great work The Principia, which was given to the world in 1687. In this work, he showed the tides also to be the outcome of gravitation. In fact, he announced the great law that, quote, every particle of matter in the universe attracts every other particle, end quote. This discovery was not, however, at once accepted. Huygens rejected it, though admitting that gravitation ruled the planetary motions. The clergy pronounced it to be impious, and it was a long time before it was taught in the universities. Still, like all true theories, it triumphed. It happened that Newton was not a rich man, and was unable to pay for the publication of the Principia. The Royal Society was also without available funds, and the result was that Halley generously had the book published at his own expense. Halley was Newton's most devoted friend, and their friendship continued without interruption. After the publication of his book, Newton speculated in chemistry, but all his labors were lost by an unfortunate accident. 
One morning he went to church, leaving a lighted candle among the papers on his desk. It is said that his pet dog, Diamond, upset the candle. When the astronomer came home, he found all his papers destroyed. He exclaimed, quote, O Diamond, Diamond, thou little knowest the mischief thou hast done. End quote. His health was impaired by the accident, and though only about fifty years old at the time, he made no more great discoveries. In 1687, Newton came prominently before the public. In that year, when James II attempted to infringe on the rights of the University of Cambridge, Newton was one of the nine men who defended the conduct of the university and won the case. In 1688, he represented the university in Parliament, and for two years retained his seat. At length, many of his friends began to think that he should get some honor or appointment. Mr. Charles Montague, a great friend of Newton, was appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1694, and in 1695 he offered the position of Warden of the Mint to the astronomer, who accepted it, his knowledge of physics being of much use to him in his new sphere. In 1697, the position of Master of the Mint fell vacant, and Newton was appointed to that office. He soon found, however, that he could not discharge his duties both at the Mint and at Cambridge, and in 1701 he resigned his professorship and severed his connection with the university. In 1703, Newton was elected president of the Royal Society, a position which he held until the end of his life. In 1705, he was knighted by Queen Anne in recognition of his great discoveries. He now resided in London, and during the remaining years of his life, he was chiefly occupied with his duties at the Mint and at the Royal Society, and his mathematical and theological studies. He was deeply interested in theology, being of an extremely religious temperament. On March 20, 1727, Sir Isaac Newton died in London, after a long illness, at the age of 84. A week later, he was buried in Westminster Abbey. A magnificent statue was afterwards erected to his memory at Cambridge, where he is represented as holding in his hand a prism. Another memorial to England's greatest astronomer was erected in Lincolnshire in 1858. Considering the vast importance of his discoveries, Sir Isaac Newton was in no way elated. He was always ready to acknowledge what he owed to the great men who preceded him. If I have seen farther than other men, he said, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of the giants. His prevailing humility is well expressed by him in his old age, when he compared himself to a little child on the seashore gathering pebbles. He had picked one or two from the waves, but the infinite treasures remained undiscovered. Newton's chief contemporaries, Flamsteed and Halley, were the first and second holders of the office of Astronomer Royal of England. Both were distinguished men. Flamsteed was the elder of the two, and like Hipparchus and Tycho, was essentially a practical astronomer. His star catalogue, constructed at Greenwich, is a standard work, and has been for many years a book of reference to astronomers all over the world. Flamsteed died in 1719, after a life of usefulness and activity. Halley, who succeeded him, was more of a brilliant genius, and less of a steady observer than Flamsteed. Born in 1656, he was the son of Edmund Halley, a wealthy soap boiler in London. Young Halley, from his earliest years, showed interest in mechanical invention. He was educated at St. Paul's School in London, and by the time he left the school, 
he had made much progress in astronomy and mathematics. At the age of seventeen he entered the University of Oxford. At this time he was deeply interested in mathematics, and solved some questions regarding movement in an ellipse, and at the age of nineteen he published a mathematical treatise. Halley had no intention of being merely an astronomer on paper. He longed to start the practical work of observing. This was an easy matter, for not only was his father wealthy, but he was a wise man, and was anxious that his son should take up the subject in which he was most interested. He therefore gave him an allowance of three hundred pounds. The young astronomer desired to follow Tycho Brahe's example in determining the positions of the stars with great accuracy. Finding, however, that Flamsteed of Greenwich and Hevelius of Danzig were engaged on work of the same kind, he determined to visit the island of St. Helena to observe the southern stars, which until then had been neglected. Halley left Oxford University before taking his degree, and set sail in 1676, when in his twentieth year, in an East India Company ship. Three months later he arrived at St. Helena, having with him a sextant and a telescope twenty-four feet in focal length. The climate of the island, however, proving unfavorable, Halley remained for one year only. All the same, he accomplished much valuable work, which gained for him the title, quote, Our Southern Tycho, end quote. In 1677, the astronomer returned to England, and through the influence of King Charles II, he was made a Master of Arts at Oxford in the following year. In 1678, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society, and some time later he was appointed Secretary, an office which he held until he was made Astronomer Royal. In 1679, he visited Germany in order to represent the Royal Society in a controversy with Hevelius of Danzig in regard to the utility of the telescope in the determination of the positions of the stars. Halley remained at Danzig with Hevelius for a year and spoke highly of Hevelius's skill as an observer. In 1680, Halley traveled over Europe. He spent much time at the Paris Observatory, at that time directed by Cassini, famous for his satellite discoveries. Halley and Cassini made observations together on the comet of 1680. The English astronomer was very well received in Paris and in all the continental cities. Halley was much interested in the subject of magnetism and the variation of the magnetic needle. In 1692, he put forward a theory of terrestrial magnetism. Twice he took a voyage to the southern seas to observe this variation. In 1694 he set out, but he was obliged to return in 1695 as one of his lieutenants mutinied. In 1699 he again set out and passed the 52nd degree of latitude. In these latitudes, he said, we fell in with great islands of ice of so incredible height and magnitude that I scarce dare write my thoughts of it. The ice preventing his advance, he finally returned to England in 1700 and published a chart respecting magnetic variation. In 1684, Halley became intimate with Newton, and indeed it was he who advised Newton to publish his discoveries in regard to gravitation. In December 1684, Halley announced to the Royal Society that Newton was about to write a paper on the subject of gravitation. As has already been explained, the Royal Society was at a very low ebb in regard to funds. At length, the Society ordered that Halley, quote, should undertake the business of looking after the book and printing it at his own charge, end quote, which he agreed to do. 
Reference has been made in the chapters on comets to Halley's greatest discovery, that of the revolution of the comet bearing his name. Another of his great discoveries related to the transit of Venus. He saw that the transits would give astronomers an opportunity of measuring the distance of the sun from the earth, and he urged on astronomers the necessity of observing the transit of 1761, which, however, he knew could not occur until many years after his death. His advice was taken by other eminent astronomers who followed him. In 1715, Halley observed the total eclipse of that year, the first which was visible in London since 1140. He observed the eclipse from the rooms of the Royal Society, and left a minute description of the corona. The death of Flamsteed, which took place in 1719, gave Halley the position of Astronomer Royal, to which he was appointed in 1720. He found no instruments in the observatory at Greenwich, as those hitherto in use, being the property of Flamsteed, had been removed by his wife, who refused to sell them to Halley on account of unhappy differences which existed between the two astronomers. Not only had Halley no instruments, but he was also without assistance. In 1721, he had a telescope erected at Greenwich, and then, though 64 years of age, he determined to observe the moon during a period of 18 years. Halley just lived to complete his observations, which were very useful. His health began to give way in 1739, and he died in 1742, at the age of 85, having survived Newton for 15 years. He was buried at Lee, in Kent. James Bradley and James Ferguson, the remaining two men of note among Newton's immediate successors, were each men of distinction in their particular spheres. James Bradley was born at Sherborne in Gloucestershire in 1693. Of his private life, there is little to tell. He was educated first at the school of Northleach and afterwards at the University of Oxford, which he entered in 1711, when in his 19th year. While at the university, he spent much time with his uncle, the Reverend James Pound, who, although by profession a clergyman, was deeply interested in astronomy and a well-known observer. It was doubtless through friendship with his uncle that Bradley became expert in the use of astronomical instruments. Bradley and his uncle together investigated the subject of the parallax of the sun by observing the opposition of Mars. Pound and Bradley showed, as they believe, that the distance of the sun must be more than 94 millions of miles and less than 125 millions. We now know that they overestimated the sun's distance. But considering their imperfect instruments, it was remarkably near the truth. Halley had evidently a high opinion of Bradley, whose talents were now so widely known that he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society in 1718. About this time, Bradley paid much attention to the eclipses of Jupiter's satellites, which he predicted with much accuracy. Bradley was originally intended for a clerical career, and in 1719, the Bishop of Hereford offered him the vicarage of Bridstow in Monmouthshire, to which he was appointed in 1720. But he was only two years in his clerical position. The civilian professorship of astronomy at Oxford, previously occupied by Halley, became vacant by the death of Halley's successor, Kyle. At that time, it was a rule that the civilian professor of astronomy must not hold a clerical appointment 
and there is little doubt that Pound would have been elected had he been willing to surrender his connection with the church. Bradley, however, expressed his willingness to give up his vicarage, and he was appointed to the civilian chair in 1722, when he was 29 years of age. Notwithstanding the awkward and inconvenient instruments with which the civilian professor had to conduct his observations, in 1723 he observed the transit of Mercury and succeeded in measuring the size of Venus, while he made many important observations on the comet of 1723. The greatest of Bradley's discoveries was made in 1725 and 1726. He was looking for something quite different from what he discovered. From the time of Copernicus, astronomers had made every effort to measure the parallax of the stars, and their inability to do so was long felt as one drawback of the Copernican system. Bradley made an attempt. He was not successful, but his labors were rewarded by a brilliant discovery that of the, quote, aberration of light, end quote. The astronomer decided to make observations for a year on the star Gamma Draconis in the constellation Draco, the instrument used being a refractor 24 feet 3 inches in focal length. It was erected in Kew Green, near London, at the house occupied by Samuel Molyneux, afterwards a lord of the Admiralty, who at one time was greatly interested in astronomy. The observations in search of parallax were continued for a year. It was found, after much patient observation, that Gamma Draconis was actually displaced in position. But Bradley was not long in finding that the displacement was not due to parallax, as it was of an exactly opposite character. For a long time the astronomer was much perplexed as to the cause of the variation, and he determined to make elaborate investigation of various other stars. He found that all the stars which he observed showed the same displacement. This phenomenon was not explained by Bradley until some time after the remarkable discovery. It had been discovered before the time of Bradley, by Romer, that light requires time to travel through space, and it was found that the rate at which it traveled was 186,000 miles a second. Bradley then hit upon the idea that the reason of the displacement was the combined movements of light and the earth. Thus, as the earth moved, the stars were displaced in position. This discovery finally confirmed the Copernican theory by showing that the earth really moved, and it was also of great use in astronomy, Bradley made many experiments to verify his discovery, which was soon placed beyond all doubt. This discovery gained for Bradley the admiration of Newton, who, in his old age, was heard to call him, quote, the best astronomer in Europe, end quote. In February 1742, Bradley was appointed Astronomer Royal of England in succession to Halley. In June 1742, he made his first observation with the transit instrument at Greenwich. The new astronomer Royal was an extremely energetic man, and it appears that on one day, 255 observations were taken by himself alone. By 1747, he had completed the observations, which revealed his second great discovery, that of the nutation of the Earth's axis. It had been known for long that the pole of the Earth is not fixed, and does not point constantly to the same point in the sky. Thus the star in Ursa Major, which we call the pole star, will not occupy that position forever. 
In the course of 25,000 years, the pole will have moved in a great circle through the sky and will once more point to the pole star. During its revolution in the course of 12,000 years, the pole will be close to Vega in Lyra. What Bradley discovered was that in the course of 19 years, the position of the pole varied in an extraordinary manner. This was at first thought to be inconsistent with Newton's theory, but Bradley showed it to be due to the variable action of the moon on the matter accumulated round the terrestrial equator. In 1752, Bradley took a prominent part in the change of the calendar in England. Many years before, the Gregorian calendar had been instituted by one of the popes and adopted by many of the countries of Europe. In this matter, the Roman Catholic Church happened to be right, but England for long refused to accept the new calendar. For his efforts, Bradley met with violent opposition. In the words of Mr. Morton, quote, the people believed that the astronomer was somehow going to rob them of eleven days of their lives, and his decline in death soon after was popularly supposed to be the judgment of heaven. End quote. During the last two years of his life, he was subject to a melancholy depression, as he feared that he would survive his mental powers. Probably this depression hastened his death, which took place in 1762. Newton's theory of gravitation, despite his work and that of his successors, was not at first popular, especially in England. Strange to say, England was not the first country to accept the Newtonian teaching. In Scotland, the law of gravitation was taught earlier than in the sister kingdom, and indeed it fell to a Scotsman to popularize fully the Newtonian theory. Quote, Astronomy explained upon Sir Isaac Newton's principles, end quote, was the work of James Ferguson. James Ferguson was born at Cor of Mayen near Rathaime in Banffshire in 1710. His father, John Ferguson, was a poor farm laborer and James was the second son. The future astronomer had little education. He learned to read unaided and his father, a man of considerable intelligence, taught him to write. About three months I afterwards had at the grammar school at Keith, wrote Ferguson, was all the education I ever received. When about seven years of age, he became interested in mechanics and wrote an account of mechanical contrivances. At the age of ten, he was sent by his father to keep sheep for a neighbor. While so employed, he began to study the stars. When he was fourteen years of age, he, to give his own account, quote, went to serve a considerable farmer in the neighborhood, whose name was James Glashand. I found him very kind and indulgent, but he soon observed that, when my work was over, I went into a field with a blanket about me, lay down on my back, and stretched a thread with small beads on it at arm's length between my eye and the stars, sliding the beads upon it till they hid such and such stars from my eye, in order to take their apparent distance from one another, and then, laying the thread upon a paper, I marked the stars thereon by the beads according to their respective positions, having a candle by me. My master at first laughed at me, but when I explained my meaning to him, he encouraged me to go on, and that I might make fair copies in the daytime of what I had done in the night. He often worked for me himself. End quote. Thus, in the lonely hills of Bampshire, the shepherd boy astronomer, encouraged by this kindly farmer, commenced observation of the great orbs of heaven. 
Through Glashan, Ferguson became acquainted with higher people about Banffshire, and lived for a time with Thomas Grant, a neighboring gentleman, whose butler encouraged him in his studies. This man was evidently a good mathematician, and he taught Ferguson algebra and geometry. After his friend left the gentleman's house, Ferguson went back to live with his father, and was employed by a miller about 1731. In the following year, Ferguson became acquainted with Sir James Dunbar of Dern, whose sister, being much interested in the young astronomer, took him with her to Edinburgh in 1734. He remained some time in Edinburgh, and while paying a visit to Inverness in 1739, he again became interested in astronomy, and constructed on paper an elaborate diagram of the motions of the sun and moon. He also made calculations regarding eclipses of the sun. Ferguson returned to Edinburgh in 1741, and two years later finally quitted Scotland for London, taking along with him a mechanical orrery representing the movements of the planets, which he constructed in Edinburgh. On his arrival in London, the astronomer became intimate with a gentleman who proposed to get him appointed master of a mathematical school. The plan, however, collapsed, and Ferguson took up the business of drawing pictures and lecturing on astronomy. In the words of Henderson, the author of The Life of Ferguson, quote, With these two professions, Ferguson had a somewhat severe struggle for a living in London for nearly 17 years. End quote. Although James Ferguson was a great observer, he was not a great mathematician, and to the end of his life, he did not understand Euclid. He had, however, a genius for mechanical invention, and he constructed a large number of orreries, planetariums, etc., representing the motions of the sun, moon, planets, and comets. These mechanical models were highly complex in their structure, and we may assert that no astronomer has ever possessed such a genius for representing the movements of the celestial bodies by means of mechanical contrivances as James Ferguson. He likewise constructed astronomical clocks and sundials. In fact, everything connected with observational astronomy was dealt with in these wonderful machines. In 1748, Ferguson commenced his popular lectures, the first subject being the solar eclipse of July 14th in that year. The following year, he lectured on other subjects besides astronomy, including mechanics, electricity, optics, etc. In 1751, he constructed his satellite machine, which represented by clockwork the motions of Jupiter's satellites, an excellent illustration of this machine is given in Henderson's work, to which reference has already been made. Ferguson published in 1754 one of his works, quote, An idea of the material universe from a survey of the solar system, end quote. And at this time he was making preparations for his greatest book, quote, Astronomy Explained Upon Sir Isaac Newton's Principles, end quote, which was published in London in June 1756. During the author's lifetime, it went through six editions. Ferguson was now held in universal respect, and his work superseded for a great number of years all other books on astronomy. But he was in very poor circumstances, his sole livelihood being picture drawing and his lectures. In 1760, King George III granted to Ferguson an allowance of 50 pounds a year. This pension was given at a critical period in the astronomer's life, when his difficulties almost made him contemplate returning to Scotland. 
the pension however placed him in a fairly prosperous position and he lectured at bristol and at bath with great popular success his reputation too increased and in seventeen sixty three he was elected a fellow of the royal society in seventeen sixty one ferguson observed the transit of venus from the top of the british museum using a six-foot reflector he remarked quote, i carefully examined the sun's disk to discover a satellite of venus but saw none end quote. for some time before the transit he had been taking much interest in it as it afforded the best means of measuring the sun's distance two years later he sent a paper on his observations to be read before the royal society year after year the astronomer invented new machines representing the movement of the planets to be exhibited at his public lectures he also observed the spots on the sun and left a drawing of them while in seventeen sixty nine he published a description of the transit of venus of that year the last of the pair of transits visible during his lifetime ferguson died in london in seventeen seventy six his name will forever be remembered as one who not only made important observations and constructed extraordinary instruments and machines but as one who did more to make astronomy popular than any other astronomer of his day the greatest service however which this man of science rendered was that it was his book on astronomy which started william herschel on his wonderful career as an observer of the heavens and for this alone the world can never be sufficiently grateful but the chief lesson which we learn from the life of james ferguson is that enthusiasm and perseverance overcome all obstacles it is surely a striking fact that in the face of tremendous difficulties the humble shepherd boy was destined to do more in popularizing astronomy than all his predecessors End of chapter thirty one